0: Thank you for listening to Cigars with Spurgeon. Today, I invite you to hear an interview with Professor Jeff Chang. Professor Chang is the curator of the Spurgeon Library at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he also teaches church history and historical theology. First, a bit about the library. The space houses almost 6,000 books from Spurgeon's personal library, covering topics from theology, church history, and ecclesiology, to travel, natural history, and anthropology. And these aren't even his entire library. Spurgeon really was a deeply studied man with a voracious appetite for books. Given the breadth of topics he read, I'm certain he would have been an expert in any topic he turned his attention to. Since his calling was pastoral ministry, he preached to millions. In the alternate universe where Spurgeon studied medicine, there is no common cold. In one where he was born a thousand years sooner, they've never heard of the term Dark Ages. The library also houses interesting artifacts, such as benches from the primitive Methodist church where Spurgeon was saved, and his home office writing desk. Though Spurgeon had words to say about the superstitious system built around relics, pilgrimages, and veneration of saints, I'll still admit I had a sense of awe looking at his inkwell and pen. And our entire interview took place just a couple feet away from one of Spurgeon's cigars and his pipe. A couple feet, guys. My friend and mentor, Brian Hanks, had been offering to take me to the library back before we started recording episodes and before COVID-19. He was the one who set up our visit and secured a chance to record an interview. He also helped keep the conversation moving along as it became obvious that I was tired and a little bit distracted. Had I been more alert and attentive, I may have noticed the hum caused by the acoustics of the room where that cigar is displayed. I wouldn't have been able to actually do anything about it, but I would have at least noticed it. As it is, you'll have to imagine that our interview took place on a plane or in a hydroelectric dam. Or my preferred explanation, that the hum is the power and energy of Spurgeon's legacy being focused through the cigar like an infinity stone. Here's the interview with Professor Jeff Chang.
1: Introduce yourself and uh, tell me how you were saved. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, So I grew up in a Christian home, my parents are immigrants from Taiwan. And uh, they immigrated first to Brazil. So I was actually born in in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, Grew up in in a, uh, by God's grace, evangelical gospel preaching uh, Taiwanese church there in Sao Paulo. So I grew up hearing the gospel. Grew up uh, being exposed to the Bible. My parents read to me and and taught me about Christ and and who God was. Um, I think I, I understood myself to be a Christian from a very early age. So I don't know that I was actually converted quite yet. It's one of those dynamics growing up in a Christian home. We moved to Houston uh, when I was about eight years old uh, and there grew up in Houston Chinese church, again another gospel preaching church there in Houston, uh, an immigrant Chinese church there. Um, And and I think, by God's grace, it was probably around sixth grade at a summer camp, you know, for whatever reason, for the first time, the gospel of landed on me personally, understood mm-hmm. that I needed a Savior, that, that I had sins that needed to be paid for, and he paid it on my behalf. Um, and, yeah, I think that's when I was saved. And, and by God's grace, I see evidences of God's work in my life kind of throughout kind of middle school, high school, and, and into college. Um, after college, uh, I, I worked as a, a consultant, but during that time, was exposed to the preaching of John Piper, like so many of my generation and began to grow in my love for Scripture, my love of theology, and began to feel a call to ministry, a call to preach. Um, And so kind of pursue that path from sort of after college and onwards. Awesome. So where did your interest in Spurgeon begin?
0: And how did it lead to what you're doing now, Spurgeon Studies?
1: Yeah, it's so funny because I'm here in this position and people assume I've been you know, fascinated and obsessed with Persian for a very, very long time. But um, actually, prior to coming here to Midwestern, I was working as a pastor. I, I came here to Midwestern to serve in this position as a curator uh, of the Persian Library as a, as a professor uh, in the summer of 2020. Okay. So, so less than a year ago. And uh, for the past 10 years, I've been serving as a pastor in Portland, Oregon, Hinson Baptist Church. I was an associate pastor there. Uh, wonderful experience, uh, a, a wonderful church family, uh, made lots of dear friends there, uh, they are uh, just a wonderful congregation there in the Pacific Northwest, and a, a very needy place, and it was a joy to, to minister kind of there in their midst. Uh, about 2016, I began to pray and think about pursuing a, a, a doctrine, and so coming here to Midwestern, one of the things I encourage you is just kind of from the beginning start thinking about what you want to write your dissertation on. Knowing that this place exists here, the Spurgeon Library, uh, knowing that they're they're seeking to be a place for Spurgeon scholarship, it just made sense that I wanted to to write on Spurgeon. So ever since 2016, really, when I began to kind of work towards producing a a dissertation on Spurgeon, um, yeah, Spurgeon's been a very close friend. I'm trying to read everything I can on him.
2: So your dissertation, what was the the topic of the dissertation? Yeah, so,
1: you know, it, it just blows my mind that for somebody as significant, as Spurgeon there in the 19th century, the impact that he had around the world, that we're still actually in in very early phases of of scholarship for for studying, like actual kind of academic work for studying Spurgeon. So uh, I did my work on his ecclesiology, and and particularly his sort of pastoral ecclesiology. How did he think about things like church membership, the church discipline, and um, how did he carry out membership interviews, how did he think about the local church and its relation to the world, you know so kind of looking at him as a pastor and his approach to the church and, and that was by God's grace just kind of brand new kind of territory that I was exploring. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun.
2: So you know with, with Midwestern's thrush, Mid- Midwestern Seminary's thrust toward you know equipping local church I mean what uh, maybe from your dissertation or from your other studies uh, what are some what are some takeaways that, that today's church could, could get from his
1: ecclesiology? Yeah, uh, so many uh, takeaways um, and, and it, you're exactly right that it really fits with Midwestern's vision for the church I didn't go looking for that but that's what I found I mean first and foremost I think Spurgeon was a churchman you know we we hear so much about his ministry in terms of his, his publications his sermons that were published everywhere uh, his, his orphanages um, you know his college but underneath all of that the, the foundation of uh, of his ministry was the fact that he was called by a church to be their pastor and as a pastor he uh, was concerned to do that faithfully you know, as, a, as a baptist he practiced regenerate church membership meaning only believers are allowed to to join the church you know, to be baptized and join the church and just think about how difficult that would have been if you were the pastor of a church and the revival revival's breaking out you know hundreds are being converted um, hundreds are applying for membership uh, you know, over the course of his ministry 38 years in London uh, he had something like 14,000 people go through that church so that's 14,000 membership interviews that he did you know, 14,000 people brought before the congregation for a vote uh, and then 14,000 people that the elders had to think about how are we going to shepherd these people, you know, how are we going to care for them spiritually how are we going to make sure they don't just fall through the cracks and, and, and like get lost Right. Uh, so he actually endeavored in spite of all the people that are coming in to keep meaning, membership in this church meaningful, uh, provide pastoral care, uh, you know, whatever numbers they were reporting, like, the, here's how big our church is. Like, we know where those people are, and they're they're regularly attending, and they're not just attending, but they're actually serving. Right? And, and out of that, boy, like, the, the tabernacle just became this wonderful engine for, for gospel ministry. there in London and throughout the world. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating
2: story. And I think I read he almost had one of those... Um... Moses Jethro moments where he wanted to personally interview every uh, candidate for membership and ended up having to delegate.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, you know, he probably could have stood to have more Jethro's in his life speaking to this here, <laughs> yeah. telling him to delegate a little bit more. Uh, he, he, he worked tremendously hard, but, but no doubt about it, he himself sort of acknowledges, uh, you know, when he first arrived, he, there were basically like six or seven deacons, that were functioning like elders in the church, like elders slash deacons. Uh, but within a few years, uh, by 1859, so he comes into London in 1854, so within five years, uh, the, the, he is leading the church and recognizing elders, you know, distinguishing the office of elders from deacons. And they br- they bring on you know a dozen or so elders, but then well into his ministry, he's got 30, 40 elders serving alongside him, just to try to, Provide spiritual care for such a large congregation. So yes, uh, he, he and, and later on he brings James, his brother, to be his co-pastor to sort of help him in that work. Um, but yeah, he, he even with all of that, he still does a tremendous amount of work. There's there's a quote where uh, he's talking about even kind of later in his ministry. How just the other day he did 40 membership interviews and it almost killed him <laughs> just to to have worked that hard. You know. But then he says, boy. to... If I could die doing membership interviews I'd die a happy man because you know, he just felt such joy in hearing all these stories of conversion. That's really neat. So tell me what the difference is uh, studying
0: Spurgeon as a matter of like personal spiritual development um, as as a minister yourself um, and then versus academics? Yeah
1: yeah th- those are three helpful sort of categories for thinking about how to read Spurgeon. I think all three are are wonderful, right? So, just kind of for the for the member of the church who wants to grow as a Christian, you know, Spurgeon is wonderful just devotionally. So, he's got resources like Morning and Evening. Uh, he's got books uh, like All of Grace and, and many others that are just kind of wonderful, devotional, gospel-rich uh, works that, that you can read, um, that you can be encouraged by in the gospel. Some of them are short and very accessible, even down to our age, they continue to be very understandable. Uh, his illustrations are, are powerful. So, kind of just on a devotional level, very very rich. Uh, on on the sort of ministerial level, I think Spurgeon is a huge resource for pastors. You know, if you're working on a sermon, uh, if you're needing an illustration, uh, if you're needing some ideas of, of how to talk about things, uh, how to how to make things kind of punchy, down to earth, mm. applications. I mean, he. He's a great resource for all of that. And even what I was talking about earlier in terms of him and his pastoral ministry, I mean, he's a great conversation partner as pastors are thinking through how to administer baptism and Lord's Supper and and run membership meetings and and do membership interviews and and pursue church discipline and those kinds of things. Like Spurgeon's a great resource for thinking through those things. Um, Academically, I mean, uh, the work that's, you know, coming out of here at Midwestern, uh, we're just trying to think through more critically, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but just kind of more carefully in terms of who Spurgeon was, the the impact that he had in the 19th century, uh, the way he interacted with other things going on in church history, the way he was an heir of Protestant church history, how he was influenced by earlier thought, how he shapes later thought. So that's sort of the the historical side. But even the theological side, people who are examining his writings, examining his sermons, this huge body of work and just trying to synthesize, like what was his approach to, to theology? What was his Christology? How do you think about the atonement? How do you think about the church? So there's, there's scholars who are, for the first time, trying to kind of work through and present a, a uh, kind of a complete understanding of his thought. You know, it's, it's rich work to be done. And obviously that academic work informs the earlier categories too, right? So that we don't read Spurgeon out of context We don't read him kind of through our own sort of preferences, but understand him for who he is. Right.
0: I I would think they would enhance each other. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Spurgeon, I know, know, during his lifetime, was already seeing a lot of people using him as a sock puppet. Yeah. Say whatever they thought they could find when you.
1: you And he said so much, so it's not hard, right? You just do, these days, you just do a word search, you could probably find him saying something that you like, you know. the fun thing about Spurgeon is so many groups claim him, um, not just Baptists. Yeah. And, uh, so you want to read him rightly. That's, that's yeah. The point.
0: yeah. Uh, do you have a personal favorite Spurgeon, either sermon
1: or one of his books? Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, favorite is so, so tough to answer. Um, one of my favorites is uh, one of the sermons that he preached towards the end of his life, after the after or during the downgrade controversy, uh, the greatest. Fight in the World, I think it's what it's called. It's, uh, it's a lecture that he gives to his students in the midst of this controversy over the truth of the gospel. And what's striking about it is he says that, you know, yes, we our, our weapons of this fight that we're in is the scriptures, but our army is the church. And, uh, you know, he sort of rebukes pastors for, you know, being so sloppy in their care for the church, in their practices of church membership, and these kinds of things, which I think, again, just reveals that Spurgeon, as, as much as he did, his vision for advancing the gospel was not just kind of individual effort, but it was a corporate effort. Yeah. It was a work of, of all of God's people together in the local church, uh, working together to advance the gospel. So that's one of my favorite books. Obviously, that dovetails with the work that I've been doing. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I will uh, link to anything that you want me to. In, okay. In the notes for for the show. So this kind of dovetails. What sermon or book that he wrote seems most relevant today? I mean, I th- I think um. This seems such a generic place. Like yeah. being your Favorite kid, right? Um, you know the the things that the church is going through today. It seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? But do you find that any of them in particular are are most relevant, or something that we should all look
1: to. Yeah, um, I, I think one place you can go to would just be his various works like aimed towards pastors. Yeah. And um, lectures to my students, uh, wonderful set of works there. Uh, these lectures that he gave to his students at the Pastor's College. And then you've got another work called uh, An All Around Ministry. Uh, these are uh, pastor, Pastor's College conferences that they held, and these are his lectures. At the conference, so when all of his graduates come back, and you give the uh, the address, and you get you get a nice kind of body of work there, both on how to be a pastor and how to be faithful in the ministry. You know, when I think about all that's going on in the church today, in the world today, what is the crying need? Well, it's it's for God's word, isn't it? It's for pastors who are faithful to God's word and, and who continue to carry on the ministry in holiness, uh, leading their churches in, in, in faithfulness. I think when we have Faithful churches, when, when God's word is going out, that does meet all the needs of our age, doesn't it? This is what God's people need first and foremost. So, yeah, I would commend kind of that body of work as, as Spurgeon speaks to pastors. Thank you. So we're uh, you know recording here in,
2: uh, on, on the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary campus in the Spurgeon Library, yes. and uh, that is uh, your your place of employ. So um, maybe give us a little bit of history about the. The Spurgeon Library, just an uh, awesome resource that we have here in the Kansas City area.
1: Yeah, yeah. Come visit us if you've never been to the Spurgeon Library, if you, especially if you're local here in the, in the Midwest or in the Kansas City area. Come by for a visit. We're open Monday through Friday. And, and even during the pandemic, we, we're running tours and so forth. But yeah, this what, what we have here is a, a beautiful space that houses 6,000 volumes of, of Spurgeon's Library. It's about half of what he owned. These volumes were purchased in 1906 by the Missouri Baptists. Uh, they were housed over at William Jewell College for about a century. And then in 2006, Midwestern Seminary was able to acquire these books. Uh, and, and in 2015, we built this beautiful space. It really is aesthetically uh, just a joy to be in this space. And um, you know a lot of the, the, the decor uh, reflects the time period that, that Spurgeon lived in. And, you know, when it comes to studying, when it comes to reading, uh, space matters. You know, it's it's not just about knowledge, but it's about sort of catching uh, something of the spirit of of what was going on in that book and during that time. And I think the Spurgeon Library helps provide that. Uh, We've got not only sort of a library, but it's got a museum here, you know, with with lots of artifacts and portraits and and, and, and kind of pieces of furniture that tell the story of Spurgeon's life. And it's not only a museum, but it's also uh, a research center. So, so out of the Spurgeon Library, we are advancing kind of new ground in Spurgeon Scholarship. And, and we have doctoral students doing work, uh, new research for Spurgeon Scholarship. So, yeah, so all of that is here. Uh, we invite anyone to come and, and check it out. So so onto the research side,
2: what is, uh, what's a day or a, a week in the life of the, uh, the Spurgeon <laughs> Library curator look like?
1: Yeah, so um, you know, my, my job here is uh, as a professor, so I teach church history, so the, the curator side of it is only a part of my job. You know, and the day-to-day operations here, uh, I've got assistants who, who, do, who are trained and are also Spurgeon scholars in, in their own right, uh, and they, they help with different tours. I also lead tours here, you know, show people around. Uh, but sort of outside of those day-to-day activities, uh, we are currently in the process of publishing what we call the Lost Sermons of, of Charles Spurgeon. So, so these are some of his earliest sermons, never before published. I think that we are researching, writing kind of introductions and critical footnotes and, uh, and publishing them out of the Spurgeon Library. These are beautiful volumes mm-hmm. uh, where you get to see the actual sort of facsimile pictures of his, his earliest sermon notebooks. Um, on top of that, we run events, you know, different academic conferences, uh, I, I speak in different places you know, on Spurgeon. I do interviews like this <laughs> with other groups. Uh, so yeah, it, the work here keeps me busy for sure. You just mentioned the Lost Sermon series, um,
0: can you say anything more about compiling that Lost Sermon series? I have three volumes myself. Yeah. What do you think? I, I think they're awesome. They're really cool. I uh, have that scene in his own handwriting. Mm-hmm. Is amazing, and uh, he had really good handwriting, by the way. I don't know, mine is terrible. It's, it's a lost art, isn't it? I've, yeah. <laughs> it really is. Um, but then to see the, you know, just in case it's not legible to someone, you get the the outline there, and and uh, yeah, I found the, the introductions really helpful too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're they're very beautiful. Yeah. Um, beautiful and, and big, you know, thick
1: volumes. I've got three of them. Um, where where are we at? How many are, are released? Yeah. So. Uh, they were originally found by the previous curator here in the spiritual library, uh, Dr. Christian George, and there were nine notebooks total. So we're, you know, you said you have volumes one through three, mm-hmm. volumes four through six are being published um, kind of last spring, coming, last fall, this coming spring, next fall, so volumes four through six, and then volumes seven through nine we published the following fall, I guess 22 that would be um, and 7 through 9 are actually going to be in one gigantic volume oh, wow. So all three notebooks in one volume you know the fun thing I mean the uh, about these sermons You know, we have 63 volumes of Spurgeon's sermons that begin pretty much upon his arrival in London in 1854 and he's called there as a pastor he's called there as a pastor late spring of 1854, the, the new Park Street Pulpit set begins November, I mean, it begins in 1855, but we have sermons later in the set that go back to sort of November, December of 1854. Okay. So, so these lost sermons um, pick up sort of with the very first few sermons that he preached uh, and all the way up to kind of that summer, fall of 1854 there in London. So it really brings us a complete kind of chronology of all of Spurgeon's sermons. And, and on top of that, like you, you've seen in the footnotes, there's just all kinds of really valuable historical research as we're able to get a, a window into his life you know, as he's learning to preach. Yeah. So these will be the, the Water Beach years? Yep. So uh, the bulk of it is him preaching in a little village there in, uh, surrounding Cambridge called Water Beach. Uh, he's a pastor of a church there. They're they're seeing a revival there mm-hmm. uh, in Water Beach and, and you just you really get a sense of him as a seventeen year old pastor there in Water Beach.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so so by God's grace, you know, those are available and can then be you know, published and I I assume then from there, you know, there's you know, a lot of research that can be done mm-hmm. on, on those sermons. It's just almost waiting for the publication to come for those to be, you know, further mined. So Yeah. Obviously the lost sermons are a, great contribution that the, that the library is, is providing in Spurgeon Studies, what else is uh, What else would you say is going on in, in the study of Spurgeon's work right now that um, either you know, folks here at the library in Midwestern are doing or that's, that's, that's waiting to be done in need yeah. that you might see?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and you're exactly right that you know publishing the sermons is one thing, but the next step is opening it for researchers to come and examine it. Because right? when we think of Spurgeon's story, he comes on the scene in London as like this phenom, right? He, people are just flocking to hear him preach. Uh, he's, he's causing such a stir. So the question is like, how did that happen? Where did that come from? And, and the lost sermons give us sort of insight into that. But as far as other work, you know, so much of Spurgeon's scholarship up to this point, you know, in the decades after his death, uh, the stuff that was being written about him, from people that he knew, his associates, others who admired him, It could be largely described as hagiography, meaning uh, these people. I mean, like Spurgeon could do no wrong. He was like a hero to them, like a colossus, and they just praised him. Uh, And that's not bad. I mean, it's. I'm sure it was sincere in many ways, but it's sort of there was that was sort of the first wave of of Spurgeon scholarship. There was kind of a, a next wave, kind of mid 20th century, where people were starting to write on Spurgeon more critically, and sort of some of the work. Was just getting started. Some of these people didn't appreciate very, Spurgeon very much, uh, so they, they they wrote on him critically, yeah, in a more negative sense, like unsympathetically. Mm-hmm. And yet, some were trying to bring some appreciation to to his theology, some synthesis with theology. Kind of that work was just beginning. Here, I feel like in the twenty first century, with the Spurgeon Library, uh, we have folks who are writing from kind of Baptist from the Baptist tradition, so so appreciating him. And his theology and his ecclesiology, and yet wanting to examine him critically still, you know, yeah. and, uh, and understand him in terms of his theology and in terms of who he was in the 19th century. Uh, so, so we've got this kind of third wave of scholarship happening, you know, and, you know, recently we had a dissertation here exploring uh, Spurgeon's uh, demonology. Uh, what was Spurgeon's view of Satan? How did that affect his ministry, his view of spiritual warfare? All these kinds of things, you know. so. Again, just brand new ground in, in, in Spurgeon scholarship, really fascinating stuff. So in, in that sort of critical light,
0: not asking you to dump on Spurgeon or anything, yeah. is there anything that would um, surprise us in terms of like, heterodox or heretical views that he might have held?
1: Not that I'm aware of. I mean, he, he was pretty solid theologically in terms of kind of historic Christianity. Uh, so, so he held to a Chalcedonian Christology. Nicene, uh, Trinitarianism, you know the things that the thing that could get Spurgeon in trouble is he was so illustrative and he he gave such good stories, helped people. He preached at the level where people could understand, and so as a as a preacher, as a as a homiletician, he might not always have been as careful as he needed to be, you know, in terms of his theology, right? The, the illustration might not have been completely accurate because you know every analogy breaks down at some point. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, you know people can probably find fault with him in those kinds of things. But but then you have to realize that he's a preacher at that point. He's not mm-hmm. a trying to build a systematic theology, you know. So um, no, but in, in terms of his thinking he's he's thoroughly orthodox. I think where <clears throat> he might be controversial is just the fact that you know he was pretty progressive in his day in terms of social issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he he had a huge concern for the poor. He was an abolitionist. Uh, you know, theologically, he was an evangelical Calvinist. Uh, he was a, a, a stout Baptist you know, in his view of the church. So all these things people might find controversial, uh, but but they shouldn't find surprising. He was yeah. very upfront about all these things.
2: So he was even boldly anti-Tory, I think. Yeah, in his, yeah, that's uh, in his right. politics, and yeah. was not not uh, not shy
0: about uh, you know making those kind of pronouncements. Okay, so uh, modern preacher or preachers uh, who you think most closely resemble Spurgeon's style and content? Do you have any any uh, recommendations?
1: You can't say yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say myself. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think Spurgeon, uh, in his preaching, was one of those kinds of preachers that preachers that was so unique in his style that people who tried to copy him just sounded like him. I mean, just. They sound weird, you know. I think there are some preachers who preach in such a way that people are able to sort of imitate. Uh, but then there are other preachers, like like John Piper, for example. I think of him. He's so unique in his style that when you try to preach like him, you end up just sounding like you're trying to mimic him, you know. Mm-hmm. Which is funny. This is one story where, and often as, as as young men are starting to preach, they do end up mimicking their teachers. And that's just sort of natural, you know. With with Spurgeon. I think that was happening with the students who were graduating there's this one story where Spurgeon was preaching the installation sermon for one of the students and after the sermon uh, one of these ladies goes up to him who doesn't know who he is and says you preach just like my pastor <laughs> you know, when actually he <laughs> that wasn't one who trained him so yeah I, I, I think uh, I don't know what you know we don't have a recording of his voice or a recording of his preaching so I don't know exactly what he sounded like but in terms of content I think there would be lots of preachers that I could point to in terms of content, in terms of where they, they handle the scriptures and, and use illustrations and get to the gospel. You know, one of the pastors that I've appreciated is Mark Deffer. and I feel like in many ways Mark reflects that kind of preaching.
0: Okay.
2: it's a really interesting kind of through line, I think, though, with, with Spurgeon's preaching in that, um, you know, we don't have a recording of him, mm-hmm. um, whereas so many pastors today, you know, everybody's, you know, podcasting and recording, yet all of, many of, ser- of Spurgeon's sermons were. You know, committed to print, and yeah. now we have those in print today. Yeah. And uh, I think there's still a lot to learn from from that. And even the the gospel thrust of his preaching is, is fascinating to me. Okay. Hearing that um, as those were published and distributed, um, you know, there might be one person who would, who would read one of his sermons to a group of people. I think yes. I heard a read an instance of uh, you know, maybe it was on a on a ship or, or something, yes. and um, yes. people were converted under just the the rereading of his sermons. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's fascinating that we have that still today. Yeah, um, that's right. Even though we're, we're much less, um, you know, prolific readers or yeah. uh, consumers of the printed word in, in 2021.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, we don't... It would be fascinating work for somebody to do, but uh, his, his sermons were, were hugely popular in America. And you just think about the expansion kind of westward into the frontiers here in America in the 19th century. You know, you've got these small groups of Christians and Baptists and kind of barely literate, you know, Christians out in the frontier. And, and there might not be a minister for miles and miles and miles. And so what do you do? You bring Christians together. Somebody brings in a, a, a pamphlet of Spurgeon sermons, you know, from the city. And that's what they do, you know, in uh, a, a random gathering of miners in Colorado. We're hearing stories of them reading Spurgeon sermons. You know? So just uh, all, yeah, his, his sermons are really going everywhere. The, the podcast of his day, <laughs> right. So one of the goals with uh, this podcast was just
0: to, you know, connect people back. It, it, there's a whole lot of people nowadays who, you know, read Morning and Evening or something like that. Um, you know, if, if you listen to any, especially any Baptist preachers for very long, you'll hear references to Spurgeon. But y- you know, not a lot of people even some prosperity there. gospel preachers will be referencing him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah they, they can try. Uh, you know, for for people, uh, I want to encourage people to go back to his to his sermons and read yes. them. And, and uh, you know, I've pointed people to the online resources provided by the library here. Um, do you have Spurgeon.org? Any... Yes. Uh, do you have any advice on on um, what more I can do to um, present Spurgeon to people?
1: Maybe beyond a podcast, or just you know, suggesting they go to the library. Yeah, there's a there's a nice little documentary um, through the eyes of Spurgeon. Is that what that's called? Perfect. Yeah, I, I think it's on like Prime Amazon Prime Video even. Okay. So, so you can, if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. But it's really well done. Gives you a nice overview of his life. You've got some solid Spurgeon scholars, uh, you know, speaking about his life there. Um, other ways to introduce Spurgeon. Well. I think the best way is just to expose people to the primary sources. You know, so so yes, read his sermons. Uh, use read read one of his books in a small group. You know? okay. Um Yeah, find find you know as one of the things we do here in the Spurgeon Library is just every Thursday uh, I read a selection from Spurgeon, and the students can come and sit in on that. Uh, we have discussion open to anybody. So um, you know, that's very easy to do, you know? any pastor could do that. For, for his church members, uh, and you know, and there's so much that he's written. Yeah. You can really kind of explore uh, any subject that you find would be useful for your church. You know, it, it, if your if your church is actually going through a difficult time, you know, a, a time where they're wrestling with suffering or, or loss, uh, Spurgeon could be really helpful in, mm-hmm. in helping kind of shepherding people in that. Uh, if you're if you're wanting people to think more about evangelism, you know, read Soul Winner. Right, with, with your people. Uh, I mean, I could just keep going on, right? All, all kinds of different resources that would be helpful for, for, for a local church and a pastor. Yeah, excellent. Is there anything
0: in particular that you would like to promote? Something I can link to
1: at the end um, or anything you wanna mention? Yeah, if you're thinking about uh, academic studies, certainly come to Midwestern. Uh, I think there's a wonderful thing going on here under Dr. Allen's leadership. Uh, if you're interested in church history, it's, you've got a, a wonderful faculty here. And if you have any interest in Spurgeon, come talk to me. I'd love to uh, meet you and uh, and see if you might be a part of the work that's going on here. In terms of other things to promote, I mean, the Lost Sermons are going to be, a, are, are, continue to be a wonderful resource for, for the more serious Spurgeon scholar. Uh, so I commend those to you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to be, Lord willing, publishing or kind of trade level version of my dissertation uh, here in the coming year or so. So be on the lookout for that. Oh, yeah, uh, Spurgeon.org is also just another wonderful resource so, so, so take a look there for, for whatever you might find. And uh, I'm really
0: grateful that you gave us the opportunity to come in here see these things you showed us around. might have a few more questions when we're done but uh, I wanted to thank you for letting us come in. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was Professor Jeff Chang, curator of the Spurgeon Library at MBTS. If you live in the Kansas City area, go check out the library. It's a great resource and will encourage you in your faith and your witness. Also, check out Professor Chang's faculty page, which is linked in the episode notes. I'm hoping to speak with him again when his dissertation is published. I have more questions about Spurgeon and the effects of 19th century liberalism on historical theology. If you have questions of your own, start a conversation. Reach out to me on twitter.com slash cigars or email me at cigars at gmail.com. Your question may get addressed in the next episode. Subscribe to Cigars with Spurgeon on your favorite podcast platform. By subscribing, you'll get notified whenever a new episode is released. You can also share this episode on social media. Then email me a link or a screenshot of your post and I'll put your name in to win a Cigars with Spurgeon Yeti Cup. The drawing is to celebrate a thousand downloads, so do your part to help us get there. Special thanks again to Professor Chang for his time and his work studying and promoting Spurgeon to Brian Hanks for helping set up and conduct the interview, and to Carl Kincaid for the celebratory in a tub tacos afterward. Now here's Professor Chang with the benediction.
1: Jude 1, 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever.
2: He's the mastermind, really, behind, yeah. this whole, behind this whole thing. He won't admit to it, but uh, I come along for the ride occasionally. Yeah, I'm just here to see the cool stuff and go eat tacos. I'm not- <laughs> we can eat a good deal. <laughs> so.